Support for this podcast comes from TradePoint Atlantic, the former home of Bethlehem Steel and now one of the largest, most strategically significant intermodal global logistics hubs in the country. Learn more about TradePoint Atlantic and its commitment to preserving the story of Bethlehem Steel at Sparrows Point at TradePointAtlantic.com. Welcome to a special bonus episode of Sparrows Point, an American Steel Story. I'm Aaron Hinkin, your host for the podcast, and this episode is the result of a phone call I got right after episode three in this series came out, the episode called Hard Fought Negotiations. That's the one about the evolution of labor unions, race relations, and civil rights at Bethlehem Steel and Sparrows Point. If you heard that episode, you'll remember meeting Eddie Barty Jr., He talked about his dad's work organizing and lobbying in D.C. for a consent decree that ultimately guaranteed wider job opportunities and equitable seniority structure and back pay for black workers at the mill. Well, it was Eddie Barty Jr. who gave me that phone call after the episode came out, and he very honestly communicated to me that he wasn't entirely satisfied with the way I'd represented the story of black steelworkers at Sparrows Point. He told me I had some blind spots in my storytelling, and he went on to explain the breadth and depth of black steelworkers' accomplishments in a way that made me realize There's more here that needs to be said. It was a great conversation, and uh, at the end of the call, I asked Mr. Barty Jr. if he'd be willing to go through some of his points with me again, but this time with you, the podcast listener, in on the call. He said, sure, and uh, so here we are. Eddie Barty Jr. is on the line with us now, and uh, Mr. Barty, thanks again for taking the time to share your insights here and fill in some important gaps in this story. Okay, Aaron. Um, of course, I grew up on Sparrows Point uh, from um, first grade to the twelfth grade. And some of the things I looked at, I looked at just growing up in Sparrows Point, the respect of the men that live in the community, because to live on Sparrows Point, you have to work for Sparrows Point. So one of the first things I recognized that in 1959, there was a gentleman named Mr. Pat T. Stadium. He was the first black in the rigging department. And in the rigging department, right there on I and J Street, there was a lot of guys in this game. Those guys were proud workers that worked on the Mr. Stadium, which were black, and they had such unity, and they, they were such a team. So I just, just wanted to let you know, even though things didn't always involve after 64 of the Civil Rights Act and after the 10th degree, that there was always some other things that was going on prior to that everybody wasn't an hour of. But I mean, also living on Stars Point, which was a good community, and people had great respect for each other, and a lot of people came from Virginia, and a lot of people were related to one another. The other two gentlemen that had positions as a foreman down Stars Point, because I didn't start in 1974, and this was back in the 60s when I was growing up, Mr. Prince Rollins, you know, he, he was a foreman in steelmaking. And Mr. Johnny Young, and this is uh, like in 1963 or even beyond. And the reason why I know that because uh, I used to see them come home and they had the white hats in the back of their car and really didn't pay it no mind because at that particular time, he was still kids. So, of course, in 1974, I had the experience of um, going to the steel industry. And 
when I went into the steel industry in 1974, the Rod Mill, and any, any department I went in, I realized there were several black foremen. I mean, black foremen in every department I went in. I worked steel making, Rod Mill, Cocum, Plate Mill, Pipe Mill, and the new Cold Sheet Mill, L Blast Furnace, and the Brick Department. So that was just a little story in my tender that let you know in every department I went in, there was always black steel workers throughout the time. And one of the things I recognized as time went forward, because I didn't want the picture to be painted, that in history, the black workers always worked the dirty and the hot jobs in low pay. So as time involved, we had black workers, because of everything that went on with the union and the government and the companies, eventually move up to the top jobs. You take, for example, the L Blast Furnace. And I'm, you know, I hate to call names because people feel like they slighted, but I have to give this one young lady a pop. Her name was Jean Ross. She was the control room operator, along with some other guys that were black that were control room operators. That was just a little bit different because you would never get that if, if it wasn't told. The control room was one of the highest jobs and the highest paid jobs in the L Blast Furnace about being a foreman. And we went to the steel side, and we had blacks working in the control room there and in the new coal mill. So I just wanted to bring it out that in most of the places that I went to, the rollers and the operators, the blacks have moved up to these high jobs because it sounded like in the last podcast that it just seemed like it was a stigma to me that we never involved, that we never moved up to the point where we even go to the local union. In 1962, my dad was the first black president of Local 2609, which was pretty much a predominantly white union. And then in 1971, he was elected as the first black president. And then behind him, Mr. Bert Dixon was elected as a black president. And also in the Local 2610, there were black presidents and black vice presidents. And then, you know, of course, we all took top five jobs as we moved forward and things to that capacity. So I just wanted the record to be a little more clear as our environment in the plant, where it just wasn't stigmatized that blacks only worked the hot, dirty jobs. Because um, it might start it out like that, but it didn't end up like that. You know, I just, I just want to say I really appreciate your critique and your getting in touch. Because, you know, obviously I am going to have blind spots when I share this story. And, and you said to me, you explained really well to me that... When folks talk about the history of black steelworkers, white folks especially, we have a tendency to focus really heavily on the story of, you know, the struggle, the story of how black steelworkers had these hot jobs, these dirty jobs, and faced this uphill battle against discrimination. But what I'm hearing you say is, you know, that's true, but that's just part of a much bigger, much more nuanced story. And there's a lot to celebrate after that struggle in terms of what black uh, steel workers were able to accomplish in terms of promotion and leadership in the plant. Which is 100% true. Yeah. Let me ask you also to talk a little bit more about black family, black community. Talk about the uh, neighborhood you lived in in Sparrows Point. Talk about Turner Station. Talk about the uh, how self-contained, how self-sustained those networks, those neighborhoods were. Oh, my gosh. As far as living on Spurs Point, it was a country-style living. It was a loving environment. Everyone was always caring and sharing. 
that was the most popular thing to me about back in the day because the communities of today, we don't have that because it was a small community. A lot of people came from the South. A lot of people came from Virginia. So by that, a lot of their family members was right there on those two little small streets. And I mean, I'll give you from my own example. My grandmother had two brothers that come to work in the steel industry, and they lived on Spurs Point. And one of her sisters moved, and her husband lived on Spurs Point. And my grandfather worked on Spurs Point. And as a result of that, uh, of course, my, my grandparents had eight children. And out of out of the four, out of eight of them, six of them were, were, more, were boys. And out of the six guys, four of them worked on, at Spurs Point. Of course, my dad did. So for me to grow up on Spurs Point and be right there with my cousins, it was always, hey, there you go. You was covered. You covered. Even beyond that, when I went into the mill at, at 18 years old, and I was put in the apartment where one of my cousins worked at. He was about 10 years older than me. Took me on his wing. My uncle worked there. My uncle David worked there in the Rod and Ron Mill. And my uncle Preston worked there. And uh, the Evans family lived right across the street from my grandmother. And they had 13 kids. And it was three of their kids that actually worked in the Rod and Ron Mill. So I had a sense of family right there around me when I first came in. So I felt a little welcome and I felt a little safe. And another individual that worked on the mill was Mr. Bill Chris. He worked in the control room on the Rod and Ron mill when I got there. So when I say that, he, he was on one of the highest top jobs and he came from the, uh, a native of Spurs Point. So actually, when you say that, uh, even going over to Turner Station, the community was always tight. And one thing I, heard, I learned about Turner Station was with so many people that worked down Spurs Point and a lot of people that own their own businesses. I mean, they had their own stores. They had their own gas station. They had their own laundry man. And a lot of them own, own their own houses. Where different from Spurs Point, but I was living in a company town. We didn't own that property. We rented. Mm-hmm. And when we rented, it was really cheap rent. I'm talking about, I think I paid the rent for my mom one time. It was like $72 a month. Compared to the day, your average rent is over $700 a month or $1,700 a month. Yeah. Cool. Uh, basically, man... Spurs Point was just totally respect. People respected each other. People called each other Mr. and Mrs. It was always spiritual driven, church driven. We had our own baseball teams, little leagues, basketball. The same fathers that went into the plant was the same fathers that coached us and the same fathers that encouraged us once we got into the plant. So we look back and we say, hey, I look at the pews and their grandmother lived right across the street from them. And they didn't have to go anywhere to go see their grandparents. But the, the grandfather worked in the steel mill. He worked in the machine shop. And then Harry Pugh's father worked in the machine shop. So that's the kind of atmosphere it was down Spurs Point. It was safe. We didn't have to worry about crime. We could leave our doors open. And if anybody ran into any kind of hard time, people were there to support them. I'll give you another example. When my mother had my youngest brother and she hung clothes out, Miss Robinson just came over, man, and took her clothes down, took the diapers down, and folded them up, and just, just brought them in the house, you know? That's just the kind of neighborhood it was. Now, I mean, we don't get a lot of that today. And I gave you one more story. Mr. Bukowski used to live next door to my grandmother and my grandfather on I Street. And my grandfather was sick for uh, a couple of days. And Mr. Brook would stop past the wood 
supply company, grab an extra basket of wood, and just put it on the step and knock on the door, just because of the fact that he knew his paycheck was going to be a little short. So those are the kind of things that first point that community was was everything because of the fact that people just had such respect for one another, and people just cared. And that sense still carry on today when we get together for our community's first point reunion. Mr. Barty, let me ask you, when listeners met you in uh, the third episode in this series, really they just heard you kind of talking about uh, your dad specifically and what he accomplished. Let me ask you to just say a little bit more about your own experience working in the mill. You went in there when you were 18 years old. Before I let you go, just talk to me about what that job meant to you, what you took away from it personally, what it taught you, and how it changed you as a person. Oh, my goodness. Um, of course, uh, as I got involved with the union later on in my in, in my career, uh, I became shop store. I became uh, secretary of civil rights and then chairman of civil rights. And the uh, civil rights part was uh, phenomenal to, to recognize the fact that even in 2000 and 1999 and so forth, that uh, we still had to fight sometimes to be promoted. We still had to fight sometimes for the harm practice because of the fact that sometimes they would play games about the percentage of how many people with the affirmative action as far as harm black women and harm black men. That fight probably will go on for a lifetime and, and with this corporate America, the way the world is today. But one of the things also, uh, my first uh, real top five job was a, a financial secretary. And um, just, just watching how one the community was pulled down. That kind of hurt my heart because of the fact that I would never be able to go back to none of the places that I used to play ball, went to church at, or could go sit on my grandmother's step or go sit on my step. Then part two, as me working in the rod and wine mill and in the pipe mill in 1983, that was one of the first places that they decided to shut down in 1983. And that affected me because in 1983, I didn't come back to work until 1987. We had a five-year recall, right? But as time kept going, you know, people always saying, this place is going to shut down, this place is going to shut down. And eventually, come 2011, there was some real serious issues when RG Steel took over, and they shut down the whole finishing side just before Christmas uh, one evening. And that was devastating. We knew things were going bad in South Bend. So by two, August 31st of 2012, when they announced that uh, the steel industry was going bankruptcy and that they were shutting it down, it really, really did affect me all the way around because of the fact of, you know, here it is again that uh, the community is gone, man, the plan is gone. Um, and you sit back now and we talk about Bethlehem Steel. We know it was a big giant. We know it provided 36,000 people at one time for employment. And we know that no matter how we look at it, that's just going to be something that's going to be history later on in life that's going to fade away because, like anything else, once the community is gone and once the industry is gone, I think you guys are doing a great job at the BMI by being able to bring this back up to be able to talk about it. Eddie Barty Jr., I, I want to thank you again for, for taking the time to broaden and deepen this story with us. I'm really glad we've been able to, to add this conversation into the larger series. So thank you very much. I thank you, Ern, for allowing me to give you that part, too. Appreciate it. Okay, talk to you soon.
All right, before we get ready to wrap up this bonus episode, I thought I'd share one more audio clip with you. Mr. Barty's father, Eddie Barty Sr., passed away just before this podcast series got going. But I'm going to leave you with his voice here at the end of this episode. This is an excerpt from an oral history that the elder Barty recorded a few years ago with labor historian Bill Berry. I started in 55. I worked a summer or two before when I was in high school. Are you from this area originally? Yeah, I was raised up in, uh, I was born in Baltimore City. Mm-hmm. I was born in John Hopkins, but my parents carried me to Sparrows Point when I was about a year and a half old. I stayed at Sparrows Point till 1954. Well, what was it like growing up in Sparrows Point? It was an ideal community. It was a friendly, warm, country-style neighborhood. My father died when I was 16 years old. And the people came in and just literally took over my mother's house. They cleaned, they cooked, they took up donations in the community. My mother didn't have to do anything. I remember my mother getting sick one time and uh, the, the uh, couple ladies in the community came in, helped my father, iron the clothes and stuff like that. It was ideal community. Uh, you had two churches, the Methodist Church and the Baptist Church. Most of the people attended either or. Uh, you had a few people naturally that didn't go to church. But everybody knew everybody. When you walked down the street, you spoke, how you Mr. So-and-so, how you so-and-so. You knew everybody. All the black people, black community lived on two streets, I and J Street. Uh, you had a handful, and I mean just a handful, of black foremen. They had a few what they call labor leaders. You know, this guy would be like in the labor game. He would be a labor leader. He would be in charge of uh, the crew. He had a boss. He reported to his boss. He would do what the boss said. And they would give him a couple job classes more than they did the uh, the guys that were doing the work. The foreman was probably making job class 16, 17, somewhere in that ballpark. But uh, there was uh, a lot of jobs that blacks weren't allowed to do or the units that they weren't allowed to promote on. Your mechanical department, your uh, maintenance, your maintenance period, mechanical, electrical, your machine shops and all that. It was just a black here and a very, very few, if any. And as a result, by 1968, after going to Washington and bringing the government in, the company and the union got together and we opened up the plant that you promote with your plant seniority instead of unit seniority. Eddie Barty Sr., recorded by Bill Berry for the oral history collection, All We Do Is Talk Steel. And that's going to wrap things up for this episode of Sparrow's Points, an American Steel Story, a co-production of WYPR and the Baltimore Museum of Industry as part of the BMI's Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project. You can learn more about the museum and the Bethlehem Steel Legacy Project at BMI.org. Special thanks to BMI staff members Ani Gellis, Beth Maloney, Anita Kassoff, and Joseph Abel. Thanks also to Blue Dot Sessions for providing music for the series. This podcast is made possible with generous support from TradePoint Atlantic and Maryland Humanities. For Sparrows Point, an American Steel story, I'm Aaron Hinkin. Thanks for listening.